take a moment during this festive season to reflect on the legacy you're building. Whether you're gathered around the fireplace or the dinner table, the gift of peace of mind is one that lasts a lifetime. Wishing you happy holidays from Legacy Legal Planning. WMEX Quincy Boston. Streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston. Legacy Legal Live. Hosted by Kendra O'Toole, Michelle Reed, and Elizabeth Caruso of Legacy Legal Planning is a show about discussing your estate plans, options, and answering your questions. Call in at 781-834-9639 and start your lifelong partnership covered by benefits that you've earned through proper legacy planning. Now here's your hosts, Kendra, Michelle, and Elizabeth. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back on this chilly Wednesday evening for another episode of Legacy Legal Live. We are here tonight. I am Michelle Reed. Kendra O'Toole. And I am Elizabeth Crusoe. We are excited to be here again, and we just wanted to give a little shout out where you can find us if you ever want to reach out and contact us individually. We are Legacy Legal Planning, located in Norwell. You can find us on LegacyLegalPlanning.com. Reach out to us by email at admin at LegacyLegalPlanning.com. Tonight, we have hopefully a good and informative one for you. We're talking about all things trust. We know it's a hot topic. There are millions of questions on this topic um, that we're going to set up a little bit, give you a foundation, go through different parts of a trust, different responsibilities for those regarding trusts, and we'll kick it off um, talking a little bit about just sort of in general why trusts are so important, why we talk about them consistently, why you're going to hear us say the word trust about 1,500 times this evening <laughs> and go for it. So uh, Kendra or Liz, if you want to kind of just talk a little bit about how we utilize trusts in our practice and what we generally tell clients in regard to trust planning. Sure. So I think one of the main reasons that people are interested in trust and learning about what trusts do is Generally, they are worried about probate avoidance and staying out of the court for their loved ones. Um, but there are lots of other reasons that people put trust into play, whether it is for um, purposes of planning for long-term care or if they have a loved one that may be receiving some benefits and they want to provide some supplemental um, funds for them, but not necessarily get them kicked off their benefits. And it allows us to make this plan to avoid the probate court and to be able to achieve their goals of whether they're, some of them too are minor children. So we're planning for that long term if something happened to people that have minor children. And so the trust can really come into play many different ways. And you don't need just, you know, one for each thing. You can combine many of these different scenarios sometimes into one trust. Yeah, so they're really versatile. Um, and when we talk about trust, there's there's so many elements that we could dive into, but it's important to give you a little bit of a foundation and talk about there's some terminology that can be pretty confusing. And uh, Liz is really great at this. So kick it off and give us some a foundation. <laughs> I think even before I get into terminology, it's important to differentiate what a trust is from what other legal documents are. Because I think so many people, when they come into the office, they're like, why do I need a trust? I have a will. Well, you may have a will, but the will only controls 
what is in your name alone when you pass away. And if something's not in your name alone, then it's not going through your will. And there's, you know, other mechanisms that we can use, like a trust, to make sure that it gets to who you want it to get to. Um, the will also guarantees that you will go through the probate court because the will does not give anyone the power to actually distribute your assets. A trust does. And that's the major difference is that when you have assets in a trust, there no one else needs to give any permission for anybody to do anything with them. You the trust the excuse me the trustee already has all the authority that they need written in that document to be able to do whatever they need to do to manage whatever is in that trust. It can be real estate, it can be bank accounts, it can be investment accounts. The trust can be a beneficiary of investment accounts or life insurance policies. I mean, it, there's an, any number of things that you can make into a trust or excuse me, put into a trust. Um, some important terminology with regard to trusts. So the trust is the actual, the document, the construct. Um, it's kind of like a contract. And the trustee is the person who manages the trust. So they're in control and they make the decisions about how the trust assets, which are often called the principle of the trust, are managed and how they are distributed out and things like that pursuant to what the trust says. Um, the trust also has beneficiaries. That's who benefits from the trust. Um, in many revocable trusts that we do in our office, that are simple and they are uh, probate avoidance trusts. The same people who are the trustees are also the beneficiaries because you're really just playing a paper game with the state of Massachusetts or the banks and things like that to make sure that the assets don't go through the probate court after you pass away. You're making sure that you get to, you know, complete, get to continue your control. And then after you pass away, it goes to who you want to. Um, the trust also has successor trustees that are named. So those are the people who are the backups to the people who are in charge. Um, oftentimes you'll hear terms like a grantor or donor. Uh, those are the people who created the trust, which are often, like I said, in these simple trusts, the trustees and the beneficiaries. Um, you're in trust most of the trust that we create in the office where, again, you're just trying to avoid probate, where all, all the same people wear the same hats. And it ends up being, you know, it's a simple process from start to finish, but it gets the job done as far as avoiding probate if it's properly funded. And like you just said, where the grantor and the trustee are usually that same person wearing that same hat when it's being created, um, that really, I think, is something that is something most of our clients are looking for. Um, they do not want to give up control. They want to be sure that their funds are fully accessible for them, whether they're retiring and going to be traveling and want to sell their home, or if they, you know, have minor children, just want to make sure everything is in the trust, or if they're providing for grandchildren, making sure that everything is avoiding probate, but also protected for um, the lifetime and being held in trust rather than with the court. And so being able to wear all those hats is a huge advantage 
because it also allows for people to step in even during lifetime. It makes it a little bit easier when dealing with assets all in in one trust and having one person be able to deal with everything versus having to try to figure out, you know, who's power of attorney, who's trustee, or or trying to allow somebody to step in, having it all under one roof in a sense in that contract makes it a lot easier. Yeah, and when you talk about um, even during lifetime that some people can step in and um, still manage the trust, the trust has language in it, or at least our trust do, that um, not only can the successor trustees step into power, when the original trustees die, but they can also step into power when the original trustees lose capacity. And this is something that is often very, very useful in estate planning and elder law when um, you have people who are, you know, they're getting older and sometimes they have forgetfulness and dementia issues. And if they lose capacity prior to creating these documents, then you've really left in a hole as far as dealing with the probate court. Um, If a trust is in place and there's a mechanism for that person to be able to be removed as trustee and then the trust can continue on with a successor trustee that continues to benefit the original person because they're still the beneficiary, that's really an ideal situation for everybody involved because you don't have to deal with um, somebody who no longer has the capacity to manage their own funds but the funds are still being used to help care for that person. Yeah, we have, I have a really beautiful example of that, you know, in a what otherwise would be a potential crisis disaster situation. I had um, an adult child who was the successor trustee of uh, mom and dad's trusts, and both of them were needing some level of care, one more severe than the other. But as we all know from previous episodes and just hearing things, we know that assets are involved in in care needs, whether we're needing to private pay for things or be qualified for benefits. We need someone who can step in relatively quickly. Having a proper trust in place allows that to be done. Essentially, you could get it done within a day or two. Um, If the trust terms are written properly, um, there is a pathway and direction as to how a trustee steps in relatively, you know, immediately. Everything is used with air quotes relatively. But we were able to get that done without having to fight with banks, without having to fight with the court. So it's an excellent point. I think that's one of my favorite clauses that we actually have in our trust is what we call the disability panel. And these are, you know, two to three people and sometimes more depending on the family that can step in and make a decision that the grantor, the person that created the trust, may not be in a position to handle the finances and be trustee anymore. And it doesn't require the doctor to make this decision. We do have it be a panel because you want to be sure no one's being taken advantage of and it's not just one person making that decision. But it really, when your family and when you see your loved ones experiencing some memory loss or maybe starting to use their finances in a way that was not the norm for them, the doctors don't always see that. And so this disability panel allows them to come together, make that decision, and then have the successor trustee step in to ensure that that grantor is still taken care of during lifetime. And I love that we can make that possible for families. You know, um, 
I've seen families where they have started to send out money to some sort of charity that might be spent sending a thing weekly or other cause. And if it's five, twenty dollars, you know, five dollars, ten dollars, or twenty bucks a week for people that are on a fixed income, that adds up a lot. And that's something that the family might pick up on or see differently in their checkbook or on their statement that a doctor just doesn't recognize and doesn't have those everyday conversations with someone to know something's, you know, not right here. Yeah, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on this this planning tool that we use called that disability panel, because in that respect, you've protected your loved one from that type of situation being taken advantage of. But it's also, it's it's very much in a vacuum relative to the trust. It's not a broad spectrum withdrawal of someone's decision-making rights. So they may still be able to understand and make certain health care and well-being related decisions, but potentially um, some of the things, you know, Liz talked about in a previous episode when we're talking about dementia science and things of that nature, you know, sometimes one of the, the flags that we see are um, unusual financial decisions and that's kind of where we start seeing things. So we're able to kind of catch that, keep it in its vacuum, and, and not take away an individual's rights. Whereas if we don't have that disability panel planning tool, which is something that we all utilize in one way, shape, or form, the only recourse is is physician-based. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's a higher standard. And it is potentially removing not only financial making decisions for assets in a trust, but also their own healthcare decisions. So it's a beautiful way to maintain some level of, of your own sort of, um, you know, ability to, to control your healthcare, but also protect the finances. And also from kind of a practical standpoint, um, you know, we are seeing as, as lawyers that it's more and more difficult for family members to get doctors to fill out the paperwork that actually states that somebody no longer has the capacity to manage their own finances. Um, and I'm sure this is coming from a place of, you know, liability. Um, you know, people are, you know, this is coming from a lawyer. People are so happy today and will sue each other for anything. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, a doctor is sitting there thinking twice before they make a determination that somebody, you know, can no longer make these decisions for themselves and they're not making these decisions lightly. And I'm not saying that they should. Um, I'm just saying that um, we're seeing more and more that, um, doctors are just flat out refusing to make decisions across the board like this. And these types of um, disability panels can help in a situation like that, where otherwise you might be end up having to go to court in order to remove a trustee or something like that, just to, you know, do simple transactions with a trust. And so that's one of the ways that a trust can come into play during lifetime and to ensure that the grantor is being taken care of. But to shift a little bit to the probate avoidance and kind of the potential drawbacks of having just a will, and I know Liz has touched on this already a little bit, um, but you know, going through the probate court isn't something that gets done quickly. There are laws that the assets need to essentially be available and the estate needs to stay open for a minimum of one year as creditors have that year to come in and say that they are, 
you know, owed funds and make the proper claims for them to to get paid if they're owed money. And so your beneficiaries don't even get any type of distribution in most scenarios until after that one year has passed, whereas a trust ensures that it can be streamlined, there's not that creditor waiting period, and that successor trustee can step right in and start dealing with the assets, and there might be able to be, there there would be distribution sooner than a year, and it would allow for funds to be available for your beneficiaries in a quicker manner. Another thing with the trust versus the will is that trust is private, and the entire probate process with, you know, probating a will and going through, you know, administration with the court is public. And when I say public, I mean, literally anybody can go into the probate court and ask for a deceased person's file and see everything that has been done with regard to that will. So they're going to be able to see every asset that they had. They're going to be able to see their actual will. They're going to be able to see who's getting their assets. And there's, you know, with short of asking the court to impound these documents for, you know, somebody's safety or something like that, it's there's going to be, you know, public access to these. Um, in addition to that, the um, petition actually has to be published in newspapers. So, you know, you have to pay to have a newspaper, uh, which is an amazingly expensive cost. <laughs> Um, but pay to have it published in the newspaper so that the world is, quote unquote, put on notice that this person has passed away and there may be creditors out there who are owed money from the deceased person's estate. And I know this is one of like my client's biggest things is that like if they're making decisions, it's not plastered all over, you know, all over the world as to what the decisions that they're making. Their decisions are private kept amongst who they need to be kept amongst. And, you know, it's a a much smoother process than it is making everything public. I have a story regarding both of your points in regard to privacy and probate and all of that. Lots of times we end up having to go in and um, pull files when we're called in sort of halfway to a situation. So I'm in the probate court pulling my my client's file they called us in for help they did a a little bit on their own pro se and so we we come in I'm in there requesting the file and I'm thinking you know the courts are typically backed up it's not a quick process so you expect to wait when you request a file so I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and then finally the clerk comes around calls my client's name and, and I go to reach for it and then another gentleman swoops right in and says oh that's mine he pulls it and I'm looking at him. He's looking at me and I'm like, did you have the right file? He said, yep. You know, and I'm making up a name here to protect. So, yep, this is Smith. And I said, oh, well, Smith is my file. And he's like, well, I pulled it. He was a representative from a creditor. So they're in there pulling and looking at the files and seeing what's going on. And uh, so that was that was something that was shocking to my clients. But it's this they absolutely do that because they they will put in their claims. They've got that year, as Kendra mentioned. So they will do it. And a lot of times the accounting to the court, you know, you you account exactly what is in there so you know those values. But then in the end, when distributions have been made and whatnot, those are also accounted for with the court. And it literally goes down to the dollar of, you know, Kendra O'Toole received $259,468.75. And so people know not just, oh, yeah, she got a share of that home and 
some investment accounts or bank accounts, it literally shows to the dollar what you received from the estate. And that's just something that I think most people don't necessarily want either some family or friends or even just general public to be able to have access to and know how much they received from an inheritance. Kind of like winning the lottery in a sense. You have to give your name, but nobody said you can't show up in a giant costume and cover your face if you want. Fun fact, in Massachusetts, you don't have to give your name. You can accept as a trust. So if you win the lottery, please contact Legacy Legal Planning. Don't sign that ticket until you contact us. That's right, folks. Don't sign the ticket. Call first. And if you can't remember, you can always go to WMEXBoston.com and find the link right there. It goes to the phone number, the website, everything. And really to extrapolate from what Kendra just said, as far as the beneficiaries, how exactly how much they're getting to the dollar, think about the repercussions of that as well. So the beneficiaries' names are now public. They may have creditors who can then come after them because they know that they have now just gotten an inheritance. What about the beneficiaries who may have um, divorced or have divorces or something like like gone going or things like that you know these inheritances now come into play that if they were constructed in a different way in a trust may not have otherwise come into play um so keeping your assets out of probate can have many 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 repercussions and just a reminder if you do have any questions of some of the items that we've talked about so far please be sure to call in at 781-834-9639 we would love to take any of your questions this evening And so while we're waiting for you to dial that phone, <laughs> we'll get into a little bit about, um, we've um, talked about um, sort of, give you the sort of the terminology, trust, trust, grantee, trustee, beneficiary, all the things. So let's talk a little bit about, we get a lot of questions of, okay, if I'm naming this person as my trustee, what are their duties? What are their responsibilities? What are they going to have to do on my behalf to help me with this? So I might be the trustee during my lifetime, but I have to think about these successor trustees and who I want in these roles and what responsibilities will they have. So a trustee typically, as I was saying before, is the person who's managing the trust. So they are in charge of um, making sure the the trust assets are properly invested so if if i am the successor trustee for someone i'm typically going to just continue the investment in whatever manner they had it in as long as it's not like losing money um so if you know the person that i took over for had a you know a conservative investment and was pretty risk averse as most people are um once they you know are past retirement um, I'm going to keep it in some type of a risk adverse investment like that um, because that's going to keep the principal uh, with or, or put the least amount of principal at risk as possible. And that's really what your job is as the trustee is to be managing the principal to in the best way that you can for the beneficiaries. Um, you also need to keep good records. So you want to make sure that you are saving bank statements and that you know, you know, who to contact for each of the different trust assets. You want to make sure that um, if there are trust expenses that they're being paid. So if there's a house in the trust that the house is insured and the taxes are paid and things like that, really things that people do on a day-to-day -day basis 
managing their own assets is what a trustee does. So I, I often tell people when they have, um, you know, when they're putting their house into a trust or something like that, that um, you're not going to see a day to day difference because you're already doing all of these things as your own ownership. Now you're just calling yourself as a, a trustee. You're really just putting on a different hat. Uh, so um, it is not a terrible burden to put on people who are typically used to managing their own. And there are times where a trustee might only be managing the trust for a short time period to distribute the assets and wind it down. They might be selling a house, doing taxes, um, and they're not necessarily keeping the trust open for years on end. There are ones, um, as Liz mentioned, where we talked about, you know, benefits, if people are on benefits or if it's a special trust to ensure that they're not just receiving the funds outright. That has more, a little more work in the sense of that every day, just taking care of what you do every day anyways. But if it is one that everything's going outright to the beneficiaries, there's no terms of ensuring that it gets held for years, then the trustee is usually either cashing in the investments or selling property and then doing taxes in the accounting and transferring the funds to the beneficiaries. Yeah, and one of the things we, we get a common question and we'll we'll address it a little bit more, but sometimes we say, you know, who's who's the right person to be a trustee? I always like this one because it's um we we joke a little bit and we're like, Okay, will they pick up the phone when we call? Well are they organized? Are they able to keep those records? You know, they don't have to be someone who has millions of dollars invested and they don't have to be financial gurus they just have to be able to maintain sort of what you were doing previous make sure they're not losing all your money using it for you and your best interest and again the keeping the good records and thankfully you know bank statements are, are a, a, a plus and a minus depending on if they charge you for them or not <laughs> but those those can be helpful where they can maintain those records as well so those are the types of people um, they don't have to be really financially savvy in that regard just making sure that they're they're organized and able to maintain all of those records and, and just to piggyback off that with a quick question I'm sure you run into it fairly often that folks sometimes may not keep records or good records or any records at all or sometimes it's a matter of pulling out their wallet or purse and finding, 14 years of receipts folded up into a small space. And we all know how ink loves to survive in situations like that. And then even with the bank statements, I'm sure they are not very informative sometimes of anything to do with the purchase in there. So yeah, there might be a record, but what is it really telling you? How often do you find that situation? And the people that do keep these good records, what do they have in common that seems to be the, the winning ticket to success in that regard? They're good at Excel. <laughs> So they excel at Excel. I like it. I like it. They might also have a type A personality. <laughs> okay, we're two for two on that. I like it. I, we think in most families, for most of our clients, there's usually sort of a logical choice within families, whether it's sort of um, parents with multiple children. You usually have one who's, you know, medically savvy, potentially. You've got one who's an emotional disaster, potentially, but you might have one who's financially savvy. So, you know, there's there can be a little bit of logic in regard to that. Um, we see it not work out when, you know, when there's contention and, and issues and worries uh, in, in that regard. Most, and, and then it all depend on what type of accounting you want 
for your trustee and your beneficiary. So part of these trust drafting capabilities that we have is we can chat with our clients and say, hey, what responsibility to account do you want to have for your beneficiaries? Do you want your trustee to have a quarterly readout of, okay, here's what came in, here's what went out, and here's the balance? Is that the type of sort of oversight that you want? Or do you want the type of oversight that it's only when a beneficiary requests it? So we, we counsel them quite a bit on this sorts of things, and of course, pros and cons to that, because if you're the type of person who has all the receipts in the bottom of the purse, and you want the accounting for the kids, that's not going to go over so well. And I will say, I think most people do want to try to make this as simple and easy for the trustee and for their beneficiaries. You know, we're, I, I feel that sometimes people think, oh, they're lawyers and they throw in that legalese and trying to make things more difficult. I'm simple. But these terms can be simple, but really create powerful tools to help your trustee to be able to do what they need, but also hold them accountable to your beneficiaries. And oftentimes um, with these types of trusts, the when I've said before that the trustee is the beneficiary is that you're all the same people, you're not really expected to have a detailed accounting of your own trust assets. It's really when the successor trustee takes over and starts accounting to the beneficiaries that are not themselves. That's when we start to get into these, you know, detailed accountings. And that, I think, is a wonderful place to take our first break. <laughs> Welcome back to WMEX. You're listening to Legacy Legal Live here on 1510. Thank you for joining us this evening. For those that are just tuning in, we are Kendra, Michelle, and Liz from Legacy Legal Planning in Norwell. And as a reminder, we want to remind everyone to please call in with your questions at 781 834 9639. For the first half, we talked about some terminology regarding trusts, how they work, and we're going to jump into the different types of trusts and what is kind of out there for people to learn about and maybe determine if it's something that might be useful for them. This is where it gets fun. <laughs> this is where the uh, attorney Google really comes into play because <laughs> uh, for the most part, I, I really like to simplify things for people because everybody gets so enwrapped in the legalese and gets bogged down by it. Um, and legalese is in these documents for a reason because they, they are legal documents and the, the actual legal terms have significance. But um, you can just use different words <laughs> and get to the same place. So really, it, at the end of the day, there are two types of trusts. You have irrevocable trusts and revocable trusts. You can call a revocable trust a hundred different things. It can be a living trust. It can be a family trust. It can be a joint trust. It can be a tax planning trust. You can call it whatever you want. But at its core, it's a revocable trust because the person who created it can revoke it and can change it. An irrevocable trust can also be called a hundred different things. It can be a long-term care trust. It can be a mass health planning trust. It can be an irrevocable trust. Whatever you want to call it, it doesn't change what it is at its core, which is an irrevocable trust, which is the opposite of revocable, which means it cannot be revoked and it can't be changed. And re you just have those two boxes to play with. And everything else is what you do with those original boxes. Um, you know, people 
oftentimes have things like special needs trusts and things like that. Those are just different types of irrevocable trusts. Um, I would say the majority of what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis with our clients are revocable trusts. And that's what we are talking about for the entire first half of this show. Um, a revocable trust is where someone is creating a trust and their, well, I won't say the sole purpose, but their main purpose is to avoid probate. And the person creating the trust is also going to be the trustee who manages the trust, who's also going to be the beneficiary who benefits from the trust. And none of that is going to change until the person who created the trust loses capacity to be able to manage it themselves or they pass away and the assets then go down to the beneficiaries. And that's where, you know, this education, I think we focus a lot on this with our clients is the education of the pros and cons of a revocable versus an irrevocable trust. Um, there are numerous times where we have clients come in that say, my neighbor has this irrevocable trust or this living trust, as you said, or whatever they might call it. And this is the trust I need too. And so we really try to focus on explaining the pros and cons, explaining why you use one trust over the other, how it affects them as the client, how it might affect their beneficiaries or their children. And we really lay out the options for our clients to choose what trust or plan is best for them because we are just the people that educate and lay out what can be done for you, how those different plans will play out, but then our clients need to be the ones to make that final decision on what type of trust or plan is the best one for them. And this is a good sort of shameless plug for something that we consistently talk about. Reviewing your plan relatively consistently because we often find in our practice that when we are, we are getting uh, new clients coming in our door and they may have done planning um, elsewhere many, many years ago, they come in and say, I know we have a trust. I think we're all set. And this is, in, in their minds, the trust is serving a certain purpose. So the core of their trust is executing a purpose. Then when we review the trust and we say, well, unfortunately, or fortunately, however we're looking at it, um, you know, this, this is not the type of trust that you have. So I think to Liz's point, we can call trust whatever we want, but it definitely muddies the waters when we're trying to recall what type of trust at its core that we have and what the intent was for it at the time. We have plenty of clients who start out with a revocable trust because at the time it made sense for them to maintain all of those duties and wear all of those hats. And their main goal was probate avoidance. And then many years go by and they start feeling as though asset protection and things of that nature is really the core that they want to accomplish. But in their minds, I have a trust, I'm all set. So having someone who's knowledgeable, who can go through the difference, review your particular trust and the terms within it and tell you whether or not it's a revocable or irrevocable trust and whether or not it continues to check off those boxes for your goals is so important. So there's my shameless review your plan plug. <laughs> And I I even simplify that even more for my clients when I talk to them because I say basically, what do you want your trust to do? Mm, and like, what what is it that you want it to do? Because not what do you think it does? Right. What do you mm. want it to do? And then once I know what they want it to do, then I can review the trust with that look. And then I can say, okay, it does it or it doesn't. 
And I, I'm, I mean, I have no idea what the percentage is, whether it does or it doesn't. Um, <laughs> but I mean, we're not in the business of selling, you know, sand to people live in the, who live in the desert. If your trust, if you come into the office and you say, I want my trust to do X, Y, Z, and I read it and it does X, Y, Z, I'm going to tell you that you're fine. And I'm going to tell you that you don't need to make any changes. But if you tell me that you wanted to do X, Y, Z, and it actually does A, B, C, D, X, Y, Z, well, great. You may have some bonuses, but if it only does A, B, C, D, well, that's not helpful and we need to fix it. And I'm going to tell you how we can fix it. Yeah, those reviews aren't just, you know, if you're not sure of what type of trust you have, whether it's revocable or irrevocable or what it does, our reviews really do get into, like you said, what is it that you want this to do? But then making sure that a lot of those wants that people bring up to us is either who's in charge, you know, who those successor trustees are after they, they're in charge, because sometimes that changes 10 years down the line. I don't want it, you know, to be this person anymore. They have enough stress going on. I want to name somebody else. And then who are the beneficiaries? If there was, if one of their children or something predeceased them, that's usually something that triggers a change. And so asking that question and really knowing what they want in the long run of what they want their plan to do today allows us to really go deep into that trust and ensure that it is achieving the goals that they have for their plan. And if you if you have a trust and you don't know what type of trust that you have, I'm going to go out on a limb and say assume it's a revocable trust. Because if you have an irrevocable trust, somebody else had to be a part of the creation of that trust for you. Because with an irrevocable trust, you are you are not allowed to be the trustee. You are giving your, you know, you are giving that power of control over to somebody else. So somebody else would have had to participate in the creation of that trust with you. And that's another, you know, I would say issue that sometimes people go back and forth with when they're deciding between that revocable and irrevocable because you are giving up that control, which isn't easy for everybody. And so I think that that, like you said, that's really a trigger point for people because I think that's memorable of, yes, my daughter was involved or my son was involved in this and I no longer have that control. That's kind of that clear picture of you're not the one that's able to deal with that asset and do as you wish with it. And typically when we deal with irrevocable trusts at our office, we are doing um, asset protection trusts for the purpose of starting the five-year look-back period um, for an asset no longer counting towards mass health calculations for qualification for benefits. Um, in that, ex to that extent, when we are creating irrevocable trusts to qualify for that purpose, we are advising our clients that they can no longer be the trustees and they can no longer be the beneficiaries. So they are on paper giving their assets away to somebody else who they choose to manage them for somebody else who's going to benefit from them. Um, there are certain triggers in the trust that don't allow for the beneficiaries to receive their beneficial interest until the original creators of the trust have passed away, unless the original creators of the trust give their permission. Um, 
So there are some protection mechanisms in the irrevocable trust, um, but you are irrevocably choosing to give your assets to somebody else. And I know there's a back door to everything with with lawyers, but (laughs) it's not an easy back door to use. (laughs) And these are definitely, you know, trust that, I mean, any trust really, but that you should be sitting down with a Massachusetts attorney to ensure that you are doing these trusts properly, that you are having the proper terms in and laws that apply here in Massachusetts to ensure that your trust does properly work. Because if you don't have a properly drafted trust or you don't put your assets into that trust, and I think that's actually one of the common... um, Oh my God, unfunded (laughs) trusts. Yes, very, you know, unfortunately (laughs) it is a common issue that we see somebody comes in, oh, my mom just passed away and here's her trust. And I say, okay, can I look at all the bank statements, investment accounts? Let me look at the deed for the property. And everything is still in mom's name alone, not in the trust. And that is just the trust now is literally paper. Oh, yeah. And we're going to court. Mom trusted them to take care of it, right? Yeah. That's, that's how that works. <laughs> it's It's a binder of paperweight is what it is because it's – If you create a trust and you do not proactively then put things into the trust, then all you have done is kill the tree. That's that's really all you've done. That's just sad and depressing is what that is. It is. It is. (laughs) And unfortunately, there is this big misconception out there that I have a trust, so my assets are now in that trust. But just because you've printed out all this paper and signed it, There needs to be action to actually put them in that trust. And without that action, when someone passes away, there's no way to backtrack and fix that action. That is done. Nope. No, no. This is America. There's always a redo. Come on now. (laughs) So it's really important that folks understand that being ahead of the game here is the only real way to win at this game. Because like you just said, once it happens, it happens. And there's no redos here. So you better get it right on the first swing. Peace of mind is in the power of planning. Ah, I love it. (laughs) I love it, Liz. Um, And also, we have a lot of clients um, who already come to us with financial advisors who they've had relationships for many, many years. So this is where we also talk about, you know, having them come in as part of the team. They can be very helpful because a lot of a lot of clients, you know, when we hear, okay, you've got to put your assets into the trust, it's just like eyes glaze over and they don't necessarily want to do it. So maybe they put it off and they don't do it. Uh, so financial advisors um, who are sort of on top of things can be crucial in this process because they can essentially do a lot of the legwork and they're happy to do it because they know that they're, all the hard work they've done with their client is going to be taken care of on the back end. So if, if you have an advisor that you trust, you know, there's, um, there's definitely room for collaboration there. Yeah, and um, it can be one of the greatest things to have an advisor on the other side because you can, you know, sit there with a client and say, hey, go tell your advisor to go do this. <laughs> we can be bossy with the best Yeah. Got to earn that retainer. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, because, you know, you can trust that it's going to be, you know, the beneficiary is going to be changed or the the names of the accounts are going to be changed in the correct manner to be able to, you know, make sure that that trust is correctly funded. Um, When we create trusts with our clients, if we're putting real estate 
into the trust, we are actually going to do those deeds for you at the time of the trust creation. So at least with real estate, where our clients know that their trusts are going to be funded at, you know, in real time. So they don't have to worry about that piece. But there's no other piece that your attorney can do for you without a, a power of attorney in place. Um, so, you know, we can't go to the bank and change your bank accounts. We can't change the beneficiaries in your investment accounts or anything like that. Those are things that proactively clients need to do themselves. Which we try to line up properly and give instructions of this is what you need to do. But as you said, we can't, you know, actually hold their hand and or go to the bank ourselves and sign off on it all. And we try to follow up with our clients and ensure that it's done. But sometimes life just happens and they don't get it done. And that's when we are stuck in the probate court. And unfortunately, all that planning has been done and now can't be properly used, which really is a shame when people have put in the effort of putting it together and trying to have that peace of mind, but then unfortunately just couldn't follow through with completing the act of, of going to the bank or getting it complete. And I will say sometimes, you know, banks can be difficult. And I've had clients that just said, oh, I just gave up. They were just giving me too much trouble, you know. We'll, I mean, we'll try to reach out to the bank and see what the issue is and try to get it fixed. All banks have their own rules, unfortunately. Um, we don't agree with all the rules. <laughs> but we try to do our best to not just leave our clients in the lurch of saying, you need to do this too bad. But at the same time, we try to give them the guidance, but we can't be the ones that do it. So there does need to be some action on our client's end as well. But we try to ensure that we can help take action if it's if they are hitting roadblocks. Yeah, we lovingly say part of this is we give you a little bit of homework too, but it's worth it. <laughs> um, so I think that's a beautiful segue into talking about we, we like to, as best we can, give you some of the common questions that we think you as listeners and potential clients uh, come to us with and give you a little bit of guidance there and, and talk about a couple of common misconceptions. So... Um, Starting off with, you know, we talked a little bit about trustees and who's the best person for that role. That's a really common one we get uh, in regard to that. And um, we have a lot of people who are kind of concerned about losing control potentially and tax implications. Um, so what are the, some of the things that we've, we've, we've had clients say and we've sort of and how, how we explain it? in regard to their concerns. So, you know, if I put an asset in a trust, who's taxed on it? Are my kids going to have to pay capital gains? Am I going to have to pay taxes? Isn't that a gift? We have a lot of those types of questions, right? We do. They they are concerned, and I think taxes is one of the main concerns that a lot of people bring up the most in some of our taxes. meetings. <laughs> and, you know, when it comes to taxes, let's say capital gains, they're, when it's in a trust or when someone inherits it from another person, there is step-up in basis, which means that the basis for the property that was inherited is the fair market value at the time of the owner's death. So if they passed away today and the house was worth $400,000 and the trust or the beneficiary sold the home for $400,000, then there's no capital gains. That's their basis. Or if they sold it for four fifty, dollars the cap capital gains is 
taxed on that $50,000 difference, not from when mom or dad bought the home for $20,000 back in, you know, early 1900s. And this is a perfect time to highlight one of the beauties of a trust, because if mom and dad were to just gift that house to the kids that they purchased for $20,000, there would be no stepped up in basis because it would have already been given as a gift. This is why people use trusts, because trusts can ensure that that stepped up basis, while it's still law, is made, is, is realized and you get your best tax outcome possible. And I think that is one of the most common questions that we do have when people come in about probate avoidance is, well, I'm just going to add my child to the deed. Can we just do that? And that's that conversation that we have about that step up in basis and how there's really not a benefit to doing that right now during lifetime to do that trust during lifetime to ensure that they're getting that tax advantage. Because I do think that that was kind of a old school way, for lack of better terms, that a lot of people thought, oh, I can avoid probate by just adding on a child, but it really creates a lot of tax implications that would not be there if a trust was properly used. There's there's a better way to do it is really what that boils down to, because that's, that's sort of a, a nominally cheap way to do it, but in the end, you pay for it. And honestly, I think that that was just a way that it was done before we saw values of homes the way that they are here today. Because, I mean, just think about the last, you know, 20 years, how this area of Massachusetts has exploded with home values and it just keeps going up, up and up and up. So you have, you know, when houses were passed from family to family, you know, or family member to family member, you know, 50 years ago you weren't talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxable gain. You might have been talking about thousands or maybe tens of thousands, but you weren't talking about five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars potentially taxable. That's what you're talking about today. If you have a family, you know, name the town on the South Shore that, you know, mom and dad bought the house 40 years ago for 20,000, 30,000, whatever it was, and now it might be worth a million dollars. That's all taxable gain if it's not transferred in the correct way. Yeah, and we have clients who will come to us after the fact saying, what, what do I do? Can I undo this? Can we fix this? And we have to tell them, no. So it's, it's uh, definitely something you want to avoid if you can. And where we talked about the financial advisor, you know, I think another person that we talk to often with our clients is their CPA. I think the three of us really work well together, um, financial advisor, CPA, and then our office in regard to just ensuring that we are getting the best tax advantages out there for our clients. Um, We know enough about tax, but we're also not CPAs. And so there's things that we don't know. And so to work with them to ensure that we are getting the best income tax, you know, advice, that step up in basis, making sure that things are properly done is something that we really enjoy to do to work with them to be sure that our clients are getting the best benefit. And so what about one of our favorites? Um, Trusts are too complex for my situation. They're only for the wealthy. And I'm not, quote, wealthy. I... (laughs) The trust isn't really about wealth. It's about that peace of mind. It's about making things easy for your loved ones. 
I, if you have a piece of real estate, that alone is worth having the trust. If you own property, real estate property here in Massachusetts, you should have a trust to not go through that probate process because people aren't even going to be able to do anything with the property for three, four months until somebody's appointed by the court. And I mean, no one knows when they're going to pass away. It could be winter, taxes are due, you know, per- pipes bursting. You don't want insurance claims. There's so many issues that come up with not having the ability to act on working with a home, selling a home, whatever it might be at that time. And this is another one where we see uh, attorney Google can be a real problem because our laws for transferring real estate from somebody who passed away in Massachusetts are very different from those in other states. So if you or the global you starts Googling, you know, how to transfer a property, if you don't bring up specific Massachusetts law, then you're not going to get the correct answer. There are other states where this, you know, this type of estate planning is not necessary, where, you know, you don't need to have a trust to avoid going through probate in order to have, um, you know, a property, a real piece of property pass from one person to another. It happens to be how our laws are constructed here. It happens to be how we pass title to real estate here. And it's, you know, it's the cards you're dealt with. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's it's the only real, the really the only way to avoid um, the probate process is to make sure that your real estate is is tied up um, with a trust or some other mechanism um, before you pass away. And like I said, this is a, a Massachusetts specific issue. And we really look at the full picture of your finances and your property at the time. There are clients that we have that we did the revocable trust and all that might be in there is their home because they might have an IRA or some investment accounts or bank accounts that they added their children as beneficiaries of that they weren't concerned about having actual control or having everything put into the trust. And so we can work with looking at your assets, determining what should be in that trust to make it the easiest, but then also giving you advice of what to do with other assets that might not necessarily need to go in the trust, depending on the type of planning that you're doing. I would say that's the vast majority of my clients, who people who only have real estate in trust. And there's other ways to be able to make sure that the other assets um, – pass to who they need to pass through without probate. I think sometimes people get overwhelmed by, oh my gosh, I have to put all my assets in there. So I just wanted to, you know, really make it clear that that's not necessarily the case. And we can work with everyone to ensure that things are passing without the probate court, but the trust is being used for that property that cannot have a beneficiary, which I was just on a call today with a client and they have property, I believe in Texas. And they made a comment about in Texas, it seems, I don't know how accurate this is, um, but they were doing some research and seems that you might be able to add a beneficiary on your deed for the property, which I was like, that's very interesting, but that is not something that can be done here in Massachusetts. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we work with clients to ensure that the beneficiaries are on the proper assets that we can do here. But then, and that beneficiary could be people or the trust, but then also ensuring that their real property 
is in the trust for when the time comes that either somebody needs to step in and act on their behalf or if they were to pass away and have the beneficiaries receive the funds. That's funny because we often tell our clients all the time, we can't put beneficiary designations on real estate. We have to plan for that differently. Right. So it's funny that that's the case. Just, and as Just not here. <laughs> it's no wild Texas here. Right? <laughs> so I think that this is a probably a good opportunity to stop the trust discussion because we have thrown a whole lot of information out there and um, it can get... It can get to be a lot. <laughs> this is the part of the conversation with my clients where I'm like, I've talked to you about a lot of high pie in the sky ideas for an hour. <laughs> I will put out, we have a fun event coming up at our office in Norwell at 80 Washington Street, building S as in Sam, where the very last building in the complex on December 9th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. We have about 10 local vendors coming with their with their products to sell as well as Santa's coming for some pictures. So please bring your children, grandchildren to come get pictures of Santa and buy from some I know vendors. him. <laughs> we would love for you to come to our event. Come meet us. You've heard our voice on here for numerous Wednesday evenings. So we would love to have you come meet us at Legacy Legal Planning in Norwell. You can Find information on our Facebook and Instagram at Legacy Legal Planning. And we would love for you to continue to build up your questions and call in with any questions on our future shows. And if you're email savvy and want to stay updated with what we're doing and different events that we're having, we would love to have you sign up for our newsletter. We won't bombard your inbox too much. Um, but if you want to sign up, shoot us a message on our website, contact us through WMEX, or you can always email us at admin at legacylegalplanning.com and say, sign me up. We would love to have you and share, share what we have going on. Excellent. And we're looking forward to seeing some of the photos from Santa's visit coming up. So We'll have some more information on that coming up. But ladies, as always, a fantastic program. And it's not a Wednesday night until we get Legacy Legal Live live in the house. And throw that fancy catchphrase at us one more time that we love so very much. Peace of mind is in the power of planning. There you go. Right here on 1510 WMEX. Tune in next week for more brand new episodes of Legacy Legal Live. And also catch all the past episodes at WMEX Boston. Dot com.